0: thanks for checking out the show. My podcasts all have ads. If you find the ads annoying, then consider subscribing to the podcast. With a subscription, you won't hear any ads. Plus, you'll have access to exclusive content only available to subscribers. If you can't afford a subscription, please write to me at admin at colemanhughes.org with a few words explaining why you enjoy the channel and how it benefits you. We'll get back to you after a short period of consideration, and we'll offer a subscription free of charge. Thanks again for watching and for all your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today we have my second UK guest, Inaya Folarin Iman. Inaya is the founder of the Equiano Project, a British organization dedicated to promoting free speech, common humanity, and universalism. She recently organized a conference called Towards the Common Good hosted at Cambridge, where John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, Thomas Chatterton Williams, and yours truly, all spoke, along with a host of British thinkers who are fighting in the same trenches that people like John, Glenn, Thomas, and myself are. And Inaya is one of the major people fighting this fight in the UK. She and I are exactly the same age, which makes it all the more impressive that she's built a functional organization that can throw impressive conferences. That's something I can't really imagine having done by 26. She also ran for Parliament as part of the Brexit Party in 2019. And she has written for many outlets in the UK, including Telegraph, Spiked, and Unheard. In this episode, we discuss Inaya's background growing up in a working class immigrant family. We talk about the influence of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd moment in the UK. We talk about the similarities and the differences between the US and the UK with regard to race relations. We talk about the contents of Boris Johnson's commission on race and how that report was misportrayed in the media. We talk about the tragic cases of Sasha Johnson, a Brit, and Jasmine Barnes, an American, both of whom call into question which Black lives matter and which Black lives don't. Now, let me just say this to my American audience. If you appreciate my perspective and my work on race in America, then I can't urge you enough to support Inaya who is doing analogous work in the UK, by following her on Twitter and supporting the Equiano project. So please do that. So without further ado, I give you Inaya Falarin Iman. All right, Inaya, thanks so much for coming on my show.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So uh, we just got done with the Equiano project, which is the reason I'm here in the UK for the first time in my life, this conference that you your organize. first time ever? Yes, yeah, my first time. Oh,
1: nice. Time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, this conference that you organized, which I didn't know what to expect. All I knew is that a few Americans uh, that I know, namely Thomas Chatterton Williams, John McWhorter, Jason Riley, Glenn Lowry, and myself were all crossing the Atlantic to speak at a conference about race with... Uh, well, we were the minority within a minority, I suppose, in in the room in that we were American and everyone else was uh, from the UK. And um, it turned out to be just an extremely interesting event where a, a very high level of discourse was had about race and racial identity, racial inequality, about how the conversation about race is broken and the differences between Britain and America. And I had a excellent time and you organized this conference Uh, and this is um first of all i just want to say this is an an incredible feat of organization and institution building so congratulations
1: thank you you. that means that means a lot and thank you so much for speaking it was really really exciting
0: yeah i think um hopefully if if and when people see footage of this event they'll kind of get a sense of, of what we're talking about but i guess before before i get into the event, I'm just, I want to give my audience a little sense of who you are mm-hmm. and, um, you know, where you're from and how you, how you came to be a person that's organizing around issues like free speech and increasing viewpoint diversity, uh, on the issue of race. So basically, you know, where were you born? How are you raised? And has that informed at all who, who you've become?
1: Yeah, no, that, that is a really good question. And it's always really hard to, to answer because you are just the person that you are. And so a myriad of things influence you. Um, but I was born, born in London um, to British Nigerian uh, parents. Both of my parents actually went to school here, but they are their first generation and uh, my mom, she's very political. She was actually at the conference, funnily enough.
0: <laughs> was it the woman that looked exactly like you? That's s- what sitting, everybody has said. <laughs> sitting in the on the, at, yeah. the top. So I yeah. saw her. I so said, "That looks suspiciously like." She,
1: yeah. 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 She looks like me. I don't look like her.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: um, but yeah, so she was very political um, and has quite conservative values, but is also, uh, I would say, an independent thinker. So for a Nigerian, which is known for its Pentecostal Christianity, she's actually an atheist, mm. and which is quite surprising. So there was always that uh, pushing back against uh, expectations and, and things like that. And there's also um, something quite strong within Nigerian culture. And I have many criticisms of, criticisms of Nigerian culture, but there's a lot of elements that I admire as well. And it is that um, heart work ethic, the importance of education, personal responsibility, um, and, and pride. And so those values, um, I think, actually often go very neatly with a lot of the criticism of identity politics, actually. Uh, a society uh, that is positioning your, you as a victim, and that's your kind of primary identity and status, is, seems to run uh, difficulty when up against uh, some of the things that are inculcated um, in Nigerian culture. But So for me, that was a big influence in terms of my political thinking. But it was really when I went to university, the places where you would expect, uh, as you would hope, really, are freedom of expression, academic freedom, lots of challenging, thought-provoking ideas to develop you. And I went to university at the time where there was many of these big cultural and political debates happening around populism, uh, Brexit, Trump, freedom of speech. And whilst these debates are happening within wider society and shaping the conversation, it often felt like the very space to which these conversations needed to be had were being restricted on university campuses. And from my perspective, you know, this, universities are really the places that train the next generation um, of leaders. And so it seemed completely absurd to uh, accept the fact that these spaces which are so important to our democracies um, were increasingly becoming places where debate wasn't uh, wide enough. Certain views were being delegitimized and demonised and and that wasn't okay. But it was... So discussions about free speech and all of those things were very interesting, but as many people, it was the Black Lives Matter uh, moment of 2020 which meant that there was a sense of urgency. Mm -hmm. And... uh, a narrative quickly formed as as you know very well um, about what Western society was, the position of um, ethnic minority people, um, how we should view history, um, how we should view relations between different groups, and the ideal of colorblindness, which for an older generation was the very ideal which transformed the uh, status of ethnic minority people to be that um, equal. Um, Elite, legally to, to the majority population was now being seen as racist. And from the Nigerian people that I grew up around and the people that I've listened to, that does not reflect uh, the view of all ethnic minority, or black British people, let alone African-Americans. And that was really why the Ekkuano project was started to represent um, and amplify the perspectives of a whole range of Ethnic minority people that are committed to liberal ideals, which I felt were, was being marginalized.
0: Yeah, so we'll get to 2020 in a second. But I learned that you also ran for House of Commons as part of the Brexit Party in in what year? 2019.
1: Yeah, that was in 2019. So I, I yeah, I was 22.
0: <laughs> so you and I are exactly the same age. All right. So I'm <laughs> probably six or seven months older than you.
1: Oh, nice.
0: And so we were. No doubt, in college at the same time, and it's funny that we, you know, I was dealing with exactly the same issues that you describe at Columbia, which is that you you would think this is the place where you go to have a freewheeling debate and get your mind changed in class and hear an idea you've never heard before, but it was exactly the opposite. I I was, I would go to class, be afraid to devil's advocate a position, and then after class, I would throw on a podcast Mm -hmm. that I would listen to secretly. Exactly. While I eat lunch and be far more, you know, informed. far more informed, and I would, you know, secretly talk to my my couple friends on campus that had kind of were. We would, in hushed tones, we would have these debates and conversations. Exactly the same
1: experience. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's
0: <laughs> interesting that there's that similarity across the ocean. Uh, but I did notice when 2020 hit, uh, all of a sudden, all of these very smart and interesting uh, black British writers just started popping up everywhere. It was, it was like mm-hmm. Inaya and Aisha. Mm-hmm. I was like, who are these people? I was like, <laughs> Where?" Um, um, And Mercy and many, many others, uh, many of whom were at the conference. And, you know, this, what happened in the summer of 2020 when, when George Floyd was killed and we had riots and protests and it was during COVID. So everyone was, looking for something to do Mm -hmm. right the protests went worldwide and the narrative the american narrative was shipped overseas in a way Mm -hmm. so can you talk a little bit about you know like 2020 was such a crazy moment for americans we don't really think about what happened in other places i mean we saw the videos of people protesting as far as new zealand and europe and elsewhere but the cities were burning so we were very in the classic American way, focused on ourselves. But what was going on in the UK at that moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think even here, I think a lot of people are are still processing and kind of reeling and figuring out the real impact of of the 2020 moment. And as you rightfully mentioned, we were all locked down and that created, I think, the pressure cooker conditions for when everyone was obviously plugged into the internet um, and anything that came out spread instantly at the same time, because we were all basically, that was the main thing that we were all doing. And so it was very similar, uh, the things that happened um, in the UK to what was going on in America. All of a sudden, it it was like this eruption of uh, a kind of public consciousness to, uh, quote-unquote, do something um, about racism within society. And it was very interesting. Many of the narratives um, coming out of America were applied wholesale to the UK. So one of the examples that many people bring up is this uh, whole, the phrase, hands up, don't shoot. Mm-hmm. And actually, many protesters in the UK were saying the same thing, even though uh, it's known widely that British police don't carry guns. And actually, there is that. <laughs> that and that's just an example of of um, this the, the way that that... So when that,
0: people were saying, hands up, don't shoot, in Britain, what were they imagining? I mean, did, did they imagine that they were protesting about George Floyd and Michael Brown and other Americans? Or did they imagine that they were protesting about the treatment of British blacks by police?
1: Well, I think it's both. And I think this is one of the frustrating things about the uh, global racial consciousness narrative is that it it seeks to, uh, universalize a particular idea of what black identity is. And so if anyone who um, is perceived of as black or sees themselves as black, if there is a kind of slight or a problem or a, a controversy that happens anyway, it becomes internalised and, and it takes on uh, something that people in, uh, take on for themselves. And I think that that is a huge kind of burden and responsibility to take on for yourself when actually... Um, the specificities and nuances across different countries are are, are very, very different, but there was also a, a way to that the narrative was was specifically about the u k and many people were holding up uh, banners saying the u k is not innocent and I think what they meant by that was the fact that Um, Obviously, the the UK uh, was one of the world's kind of biggest imperial powers. um, And whilst uh, it didn't necessarily have slavery in the same way on British soil, it did export slavery uh, to the colonies uh, in the Caribbean. And in other parts of the world. So there was an attempt to include Britain in the history and the legacy as to why racial politics in America is the way that it is. And, you know, I don't, I think it is important to say that whilst I'm very critical of the direction of travel of contemporary anti racism, I think it's, you know, very valid and legitimate and important to have conversations about, you know, the role that Britain has played um, historically in the development of racist ideas. But that's, part of the problem. It's often very one-sided that when we talk about um, there is an attempt to paint uh, Western societies as kind of uniquely morally evil um, and not also recognise the development of liberal ideals, which was very much part of the process of challenging the very ideas uh, that produce racism and so on. So I think that's one of my fundamental critiques of of, uh, the ideology and the the assumptions behind Black Lives Matter and the movement is that it's often very one-sided and doesn't paint that nuanced picture.
0: Yeah, that's as true in America as it is here. I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, we had the 1619 Project in 2019. I mean, one thing is that the BLM issue was big in America for about six years before 2020. And obviously it exploded then, but there, you know, it was already very much in the conversation. And that l- Ethos led to the 1619 project, and the major claim made there was that the reason the 13 colonies revolted against the British was to preserve slavery against the fear that uh, the British would stamp it out. And that's a claim that has been almost universally refuted by historians across the political aisle. It was, uh, you know, picking up on one fringe history book, but there it was it was interesting because the radical race anti-racist activists at that moment, at least in America, wanted to almost paint America specifically as evil at all, at all costs, even at the expense of simplifying the British role as sort of the anti-slavery good guys. And of course, the truth, I think, in both cases is, is complex, right? It's like, in America, we fought a civil war over the issue of slavery. We were as divided as the country has ever been over any issue. And in Britain, you had certainly responsible for a large portion of the slave trade, but then also responsible for stamping it out at great expense and forcing the world to stop the slave trade earlier than it otherwise would have. Uh, so like you, I'm never opposed to talking about the the good and the evil in in the histories of, of all of these countries, um, but it does get painted in a one-sided way more and more. And You see in America things like the 1619 Project being taught in schools, right? So being just taught as fact that everything is about slavery, America's evil. And uh, this is something that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, not least because it is historically inaccurate, but also because it gives people a picture of their country that is totally lopsided, right? All the bad and none of the good.
1: No, I completely agree. And I think that that point about the harm that it does, I think, is a really important one. So similar to the 1619 Project, we have something here called decolonizing the curriculum. Um, And that has effectively been embraced wholesale by institutions and universities. It was something that was a prominent feature of my university. And there's so there's many things that have a problem with it. One, as we just mentioned, is the fact that um, it paints a, a one-sided view and often a very historically inaccurate view. Um, so I remember one of the uh, classes that I took, um, one of the uh, lectures I went to, on uh, decolonizing gender, and one of the things it said was that there was no uh, gender binary before uh, British imperialism in, in West Africa, and it's this. And I just thought this is just completely false, and it seeks to um, effectively create a new form of. Um, Orientalism, romanticization of, of pre-colonial uh, Western societies as if they were this utopian, uh, gender equal, spiritually superior society before interaction with the West. So that's one just historically um, inaccurate and deeply kind of infantilizing to the reality of the historical complexities and tensions and conflicts that many different parts of the world uh, took part in. It also, I think, is a kind of reverse form of uh, Eurocentrism, the, the decolonizing the curriculum. It suggests that uh, white Western Europeans were kind of responsible for all of the uh, gains of humanity, when actually, um, in many senses, uh, African countries and Asian countries were part of the development of the process of, of many of these um, ideals. So a, a great example is uh, the Haitian Revolution, um, after during the French Revolution, the, the ideals that came out of that about men and women, uh, men being created equal and, and right to liberty, the, the Haitian revolutionaries used those um, ideals to challenge uh, slavery um, that was being enacted upon them. And so, actually, it was often uh, the uh, both African Americans and colonial subjects that used the arguments of, of of liberty to take it to its most ultimate conclusion. So. Oftentimes, these the kind of decolonizing the curriculum narrative cuts out uh, black and brown people from the history um, that is their, their very birthright. And the third thing that I, I really worry about, as you touched upon, is how it really alienates um, all people, black, white, or otherwise, from their cultural inheritance, um, which is the fact that this is our society as well. We belong here, and the histories. Um, of this society is ours also, and to paint it as a kind of manichaean racial history that we shouldn't have the right to to um, experience and enjoy and feel proud of, I think is is a very disempowering uh, narrative for for young people.
0: How do you identify politically?
1: I think it's really, I mean, a lot of people would love to just say that I'm, you know, right wing or conservative or or I don't necessarily identify with that label. I think I have conservative values insofar as I do believe in a personal responsibility and individual freedom, but also a kind of shared moral framework. You know, I do believe that um, in kind of community and a sense of civic purpose and duty and responsibility to society. That doesn't make me a conservative, but I think those values um, about continuity, duty and tradition and honour are very good values that I think we, we do away at our peril. But I like to think of myself as a liberal. I believe in freedom of speech, tolerance, equality under the law, colorblindness.
0: Um, a. I mean, that could be a little bit lost in translation for Americans mm. because liberal basically means left.
1: That is an interesting one. I, I don't think you guys have it right.
0: Yeah, unless you <laughs> specify. I mean, that's why people started. I mean, people have been doing this for a long time, but especially maybe 10 or 5 years ago, really started specifying I'm a classical liberal. Mm. So in America, you say classical liberal, and that doesn't, you could be a, you could vote Republican and be a classical liberal. Mm. But if you say you're liberal in America, people assume that you are a Democrat.
1: I think a classical liberal. But it's funny because you, in in the UK, a classical liberal has almost been uh, seen as just right wing now. Right. Yeah, so it is something that might be lost in translation. Ultimately, liberal ideals of freedom of speech tolerance and colorblindness and equality are things I believe in.
0: Right. So... You you ran as part of the Brexit party in 2019. What moved you to do that ideologically in terms of what did you see in Brexit? What were your reasons for supporting it? Mm -hmm. And then secondly, just on a personal level, what made you... It's an unusual decision to run at such an age, right? At 22, 23? Yeah. So those are the two questions.
1: So it's funny because I didn't actually vote in the referendum, um yeah, so I wasn't in the country at the time. I was like, living in Morocco, strangely enough. Long story, but I wasn't in the country. And um, But as soon as we voted for to leave the European Union, um, I thought it was imperative that we implement the vote. But I also think that um, you know, I'm, I'm a huge believer in democracy and, and not just that kind of general statement that that's intrinsic to how I view my politics as a Democrat. Um, and I think that there are really important questions about national sovereignty and the way that, which I think is linked to the Trump debate as well, that a huge section of the population increasingly felt that the politics that was governing their lives did not represent them. And not only didn't represent them, actually um, were contemptuous of any attempt for ordinary people to make their voices heard. And I think at some point uh, that that particular settlement that both America and Britain were experiencing was going to unravel. And, and that often hap- that happened in the form of kind of populist backlash. And at the time, um, I was very sympathetic to uh, a powerful expression of, of democratic agency and a kind of pushback against what I felt was uh, an elite political class that were not interested in improving people's lives substantially and had kind of given up on that. And so in that sense, to me, when we had voted to leave the European Union, that was something that I felt I wanted to be part of ensuring that happened. But also similar with the the discussion about Black Lives Matter, I think that whilst we can put ourselves in boxes, political boxes, I do think that um, there's always exceptions and there's always uh, a whole wide range of people that think a whole wide range of things for different reasons. And I think we have to... Um, as, as citizens, uh, listen to our fellow citizens and not just assume that, oh, well, uh, you, you voted Brexit, you must be this horrible racist or something like that. I don't think that's healthy, and I think that's part of the problem. So that's kind of why I did it, um, to for democratic reasons, for because I believed in national sovereignty. And I wanted to represent the fact that you can think these things and not be... Um, what is called in the UK, you know, uh, a gammon, which basically just means a what? A gammon. Gammon. Yeah. So that's spell that? G a m m o n. A gammon. gammon. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's basically a kind of. Uh, it, it's a derogatory term used for for people like like Trump supporters. Kind of like a derogatory term for people uh, for people that would support Deplorables. Trump. Deplorables. Yeah, like that. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Rubes. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that word. Yeah. Gammons. Okay, so let's get into some of the differences between the UK and America with regard to these issues one of the so it seems to me if the slogan on the british left during 2020 was mm-hmm. the uk is not innocent you know meaning you know america may be bad but we we are just as bad we we just as much are in some way responsible for what happened to george floyd if you go far back mm-hmm. enough then it seemed like the slogan among some of the, um, the the non-progressive speakers at the conference was, you know, the UK is not America, mm. right? The Ameri- And the subtext being the American situation with race relations is much worse, much more difficult to figure out, and the UK should not, you know, blacks in the UK should not start, talking and thinking like black activists in America because what applies there doesn't necessarily apply here, you know? And as I joked at the conference, I got sick of hearing that phrase by the end because whenever someone said the you, you know, Britain is not America, I heard the unspoken, thank God before mm-hmm. not, beforehand. And And the reason for that is because to take the example of hands up, don't shoot, right? So you have British people importing this American slogan that's been going on for, well, let's see, it's 2023, almost seven years now, six and a half years that slogan's been going on. And it's, the slogan has been a myth in America ever since it started, right? Mm. He, Michael Brown did not die with his hands up. Mm. That's been completely refuted. Instead, he, you know, punching the police officer repeatedly, reaching for his gun, struggling for the gun, and that, the circumstance in which he was shot. And so it's, it seems to me, you know, if Britain is not America, America is not even America in the sense that, you know, if the idea is we shouldn't import the, the American race conversation, that might apply over there, but it doesn't apply over here. My argument is that it doesn't even apply over here, right? So uh, it, I feel somewhat abandoned by, by some of my British sort of co-people I share a lot in common with, that say, you know what, you're on your own, but we're, we're just going to separate ourselves from you and implicitly acknowledge that maybe the activists are right about your case, but not ours.
1: Yeah, I, that is such an interesting point, and I think that that's a really important point. And I would I would push back against both the, you know, importing the racial cultures from America narrative, but also just saying that we should ignore it or, or, or reject it because that we're not America. And the fact that we wanted voices like yourself and John McWater and Glenn Lowry and so on at the conference is because I actually think there's so much that we share mm. and there's a lot that we can kind of learn from one another so the discussion about how colour blindness is being increasingly delegitimized that's a problem we're both facing totally, yeah. um questions about history mm. and how that's being recast um I think is of things that we share as well and I think Manira actually also mentioned the fact that Progress is how it's overlooked mm-hmm. um, and it's, the narrative is very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. And I think Ken and Malik mentioned that the, the overemphasis on the kind of symbolic and performative mm-hmm. nature of activism over actual material questions that both black and white people have concerns about, whether that's housing or crime or, or healthcare and so on. So I think there's a, and also the discussions about free speech and tolerance and confidence in institutions in challenging authoritarianism, um, whether that's from the left or the right. So I actually think on the, the big questions on these key discussions shaping liberal democracies, I think there's much more that we we share. That yeah. And actually in building those coalitions, oftentimes international coalitions, um, is empowering to the argument. So I agree with you on that point. I think um, I also agree about the points of, of the differences, but that should not, I think, impede on coalition building. So even though, as I mentioned earlier, the history of slavery is different, there are overlaps, but those differences produce very different things in the UK. So whilst uh, African-Americans were a part of the foundation, foundational creation of America, most of the um, ethnic minority, the black and brown people in Britain here today, um, came or are descendants of those who came in the post war years, so whether that was uh, Caribbeans from windrush, but as recently as the 1990s there was a huge wave of immigration from Africa and India and Pakistan in the 1990s there 's still a level of um, immigrant optimism amongst uh, the uh, ethnic minority people here, so that the lack of homogeneity so to speak amongst the uh, Black groups in Britain, I think, is quite telling. And I think that was mentioned in the conference, some of the differences between Caribbean, black Caribbean British people yeah. and black African British people. When, whereas those tensions aren't so sharply defined because the majority of black people in America are African-American. So there are those, those differences. And also, I mean, the civil rights movement in America was, is a huge historical a point of significance, whereas there wasn't as big of a civil rights movement in the UK. Um, so, and there was never formal segregation, so, um, whereas there was in America. And so there's been a much more fused and intermixed relationship between working class people across racial groups here in the UK, because class has historically been a much more uh, potent decider of people's lives. Obviously, nowhere near the extent now that it was in the past. Those kind of class struggles were, were bigger in the UK um, as opposed to racial struggles. So those differences are, are worth pointing out. Um, and there are other discussions in the UK that I think aren't as big in, in America, such as multiculturalism as a, as a public policy is quite a, a big discussion here, but also integration from a religious point of view. Is different, so I think on the on the nuances, I th- there there are UK specific discussions we need to have. But actually, on the broader big debates about where we are in terms of how confident we are on the future of liberal democracy, I think we we should be sharing those conversations and platforms with with you lot, with you guys.
0: Um, yeah, so there's a lot in there. One thing I found very interesting and that I, I didn't know before this conference was the huge difference in social outcomes between the first wave of black Caribbean immigrants to the UK in the fifties and the social outcomes for black, largely Nigerian immigrants in more recently, you you have, you know, much higher rates of crime and delinquency and all of the you know, negative social indicators among the car- black Caribbean population and then much higher, lower levels of crime, higher levels of income, et cetera, for the black Nigerian population. And that is interesting because it makes it... reverse
1: in America, isn't it? The Caribbeans are doing quite well, the ja- Jamaicans. I think that... Well,
0: yeah, so, so in America, yeah, the Caribbeans in many places, black Caribbeans are doing better than the, the black African-American population. Um, And also the black African population, which is both groups are very small relative to the African-American population. Something like 10 percent of black people in America are immigrants or recent immigrants. The other 90 percent are descended from slavery. So so, yeah. So so that's a that's a major difference. I mean, the fact that you have those kind of two groups of, of the same race doing very, very different, it it creates a natural experiment and question in everyone's minds, which is, okay, well, what's going on here between the two groups can't be a matter of skin color or racism, because that's a constant that's shared. Whatever level of racism there is in in the UK, whether you think it's here or whether you think it's all the way down here, that's a constant between what is faced by black Caribbeans and black Nigerians, and, and yet you have these wildly different outcomes, which which means you have to start looking in in other places for the source of disparate outcomes.
1: No, absolutely. And and on top of that, it also could mean that groups can succeed despite racism. Now, that's not, of course, you know, we all share and agree that racism is a, a profound moral evil, but it can also demonstrate that is there ways in which we can focus on the models for success, And and the models in which we can advance groups rather than always focusing on on the kind of more pessimistic or or negative end. But I think it's interesting, the history of of kind of Caribbeans um, and Africans in the UK. So the the problem was that when many of the uh, Caribbeans did come, they were very optimistic and ambitious. But, you know, they came to what at the time was perceived of as the motherland, which was meant to be this uh, uh, country of, of huge wealth. And oftentimes, actually, when they came here, they were subject to ra- racial discrimination and abuse and were often forced to, to live in, in um, uh, areas of, of poor housing and poor quality. And uh, David Goodhart, um, who, who is a, a writer on this issue in the UK, he talks about the fact that many uh, of the Caribbeans who came here adopted many of the perhaps more uh, negative Behaviors that proliferated on in socially deprived white communities because they were so uh, marginalized at the time. Um, so those, so they did experience racism and, and and a lot of issues. But then, and in some senses, the, there was a kind of improvement. But then it plateaued mm-hmm. over time. Um, whereas the the late the latter generation, um, the Africans, benefited from the uh, op, the struggles against slavery that the Caribbeans fought for, um, not slavery, sorry, um, the African Britons that came here, they benefited from the struggles against racism mm-hmm. um, that the Caribbeans fought for. But, um, and also a lot of the improvements uh, that had happened by the time that they were already there. On top of that, the immigrant optimism and the ambition that you often come with when you come to a new country. So that has also contributed to the fact that the the black Africans have been able to advance, they've not had the, the baggage um, of the experiences that many uh, black Caribbean people did have in the mid 20th century. But ultimately, um, and I think this was a, a point raised and many of us uh, raised, is that we are where we are and, and you can't change the past. And, and even if something may have its roots 100 years ago or four, 400 years ago of why it first happened in the first place. We, we are here now and, and have the power to change the future. And I think that that is, um, that is the kind of worry of the emphasis at the moment is that, okay, well, we are where we are. Whatever the roots are of this issue cannot be changed. What we can change is how we create models for success for for newer generations.
0: Yeah. To me, the crucial difference in the American case is Anytime someone points to the black immigrant population, whether that's Caribbean or West African, someone can just clap back and say, Well, those are immigrants. Immigrants always do better than average. You know, immigrants from Asia do better, immigrants from Africa do better, et cetera. And therefore that just puts that argument out of mind and makes it easier to believe that historical racism is the one and only cause of white black disparities. And therefore, the only solution is something, you know, some state action to undo the effects of, of past racism. And so, because of that, you know, m- many, many of the British commentators are right that the American conversation is harder. It's actually it's harder because. Because of that reason, it's easier analytically to blame everything on racism. Uh, there's also the fact of slavery and how that shapes many Black Americans—the the story that we tell ourselves about like why we're in the country. Like we didn't come here voluntarily; we came here in chains, right? It's like we didn't choose to be here. We are a captive audience, so you owe us. There's this attitude that gets told in certain corners and handed down in certain corners of the black population here, which couldn't really, it's not really a story that a a black Briton could tell him or herself, right? And then, and I think all of that sort of makes the position that people like myself and Glenn and John and Thomas stake out in America, I think slightly more taboo in America than the same position is in Britain. So, like, for for instance, I was just sort of looking up how do black Britons vote, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, you will see over the past 10 years there are certain elections where you have a solid 20% of black British people voting conservative and maybe 65 mm-hmm. voting for labor, right? That split has been unthinkable in America for, for, like, 60, 70 years, right? Like, to get any more than 10% would be... Almost unheard of. And to get for, for the Republican Party to get, you know, 6% of the black vote in a given year would be like pretty typical. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's clear that the position staked out by many people at the Equiano Project, the, the idea that um, racism is not the sole cause of every problem that black people face, that there's something communities can do themselves in order to um, uplift themselves, move up the socioeconomic ladder. All of these positions. They are taboo in both countries, but they're, they're somewhat more taboo in America.
1: I think that's really, really fascinating. And I do think that that, that is a challenge because even if we put the uh, facts or the reality aside, if you can just think, well... Uh, African Americans, their history is is marred by uh, slavery and Jim Crow. Of course, it's not right to expect them to lift themselves up. I mean, you can just you can run through the argument, and it kind of makes logical sense. But I think one of the points that was made in the conference, which I thought was a really important one, is this idea of the necessity um, and the moral imperative to tell ourselves new stories. So you mentioned the kind of story that um, it is told. But to me, there's there's a another story that's just as powerful, just as compelling, um, and I'm sure that y- you'll agree in, in many ways, of, of agency, of of transformation. And I mean, one of the things that I always find is remarkable is, is Frederick Douglass, who was uh, a former slave and had such a, a powerful belief in freedom of speech, you know, that in... A position of the, it's hard to imagine more significant human subjection and subjugation to be able to think beyond, to be able to see the humanity um, in those endorsing views that would lead to your enslavement, and to actually be able to imagine the possibility of human freedom. If individuals like Frederick Douglass, I mean, the Aquiano Project allowed Aquiano, as a former slave, could do a similar thing. How do I or how can I in the 21st century with the opportunities and the uh, rights and freedoms and abilities we have today not think similar things, if not more so? And similar with the civil rights movement, despite all of that, the ideals of of the content of one's character and the colour of one's skin, the the belief that we we could create a society and and we're very much on our way to creating a society um, that, Saw that were, that treated people equally. That to me is a incredibly powerful story. That's an empowering story. That's one that is compelling and galvanizing. And I think for for many of us, it's it's finding ways to uh, make to articulate that story um, and to find ways of saying that 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 really touches upon and engages with people's genuine concerns and anxieties, but shows that there's a, another way to think. I mean, a good example to me is in the UK, and I think there's been similar ones in America, about getting rid of different statues and and thing, or buildings and things, renaming them if they have connections to slavery. Um, so there was a famous one in Bristol at the, the height of Black Lives Matter, the Edward Colston statue, which was toppled and fro- thrown in the Bristol Harbour in the UK. And it was... Everyone said that and he, he's a, a former slave trader and but he was a huge philanthropist as well now many people said that the the statue was traumatizing to ethnic minority people um, which I, i've not i'm yet to see any evidence of but actually to me, rather than see that statue as something traumatizing and, and a reminder of your inferior position, why not see that as um, something that to demonstrate the how amazing it is that we live in a society that no longer uh, produces ideas that facilitates people like Edward Colston or a a triumph over the ideas that um, he may have propagated and actually uh, a desire to create a memorial landscape in public um, that reveals to us not just who we could be, but how far we've come.
0: I think part of the reason people struggle with that is is because they believe things like slavery and colonialism were invented by countries like the UK and America. They you know, the way that history is taught in schools for people that don't really do their own research is that basically the human race was just kumbaya friendly, uh, you know, frolicking around in loincloths and sharing the land mm-hmm. and not fighting at all for hundreds of thousands of years and then white people came along and just raped and pillaged and burned and and all of this. So, if you if that's your picture of, you know, what's gone on on planet Earth the past 100,000 years or 10,000 years, say, well then yeah, you're not going to think there's you're not going to be able to reframe that story in terms of look what we stopped doing because you're just going to think well we shouldn't have started it, right? The problem is that's just not you know that that's totally historically inaccurate right slavery's been around for 10 you know as long as civilization has been around you know 10,000 years or more on every inhabited continent and you can't even actually find an anti-slavery argument in print until like the 17th century or something like that which is to say you can't find documentary evidence anywhere certainly in the bible the torah the Quran, or in anything written between the Quran and the 17th century, which says, you know, I am such and such. I believe slavery is an inherently moral evil in all cases, full stop, right? Mm-hmm. You get lots of people saying, well, I'd like not to be a slave. But, but really consider that. Consider how deeply you know moral norms were different for, for most of our existence. Once you acknowledge that, then you can begin to appreciate that it is actually kind of remarkable that we have gotten past those practices. Um, But I I think historical ignorance is at play in a case like that statue.
1: I I agree. And I think it's, in a way, it's it's quite ironic because a lot of the people that advocate for identity politics and racializing history are constantly talking about the fact that we don't know enough about history.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes, that's a common refrain. And it's true, but just not the way they think.
1: No, exactly. And actually... If we uh, did know much more about history, we would know that, um, as, as you rightfully mentioned, it is a huge achievement um, that we, if you look at it from a, a wider historical view, uh, believe that humans have share equal moral worth and, that, and the belief in human agency and that what's most fundamentally important in judging people's character is, is how they behave, um, not any kind of superficial... Category um, that society imposes upon them, and even just we we know from whether that's the history of the development of Islam, but all the the various empires within, within Africa, um, the history of of indigenous uh, societies like the Mayans. I mean, it, it's endless to talk about the the uh, complexities of human beings, from examples of great uh, extraordinary bravery to unimaginable evil. And that is the rich tapestry of who we are as people, and and I think it's very sad that that complexity is being reduced, and, and no wonder that then do we have a generation who are both alienated from the past um, and kind of fearful of, of the past, and therefore feel anxious in the present because there is no kind of anchor that we can feel that we can build upon um, to take us forward in the future, but. That was the other problem with the, the, the new anti-racist politics is that it doesn't really have a vision for the future either. So it's got a very pessimistic view about human beings that racism is fundamentally entrenched within society, potentially could never really be got rid of, and that all relations are governed by racism. So if you see the future as as almost as racism being almost this inevitable problem insofar as it never gets better, but also the past as something that um, is the source of all evil then I, I don't see how you can have the confidence um, in, in the present day to really take ownership of, of your life and, and want to uh, improve things um, or, or see society as a way that can be improved. And so I think that that, to me, one of the core problems with this new politics, that, that the pessimism um, about the past and the future.
0: So if you make these kind of points in America, a certain kind of person will respond well anaya you just you you must not have experienced very much racism in your own life and you know whether that's by dint of luck or luck and class or outlier some whatever whatever explanation you know if you had experienced racism you'd be agreeing with the progressive activists on the issue has anyone ever you know hit you with that argument and how do you respond to it have you experienced racism and do you how do you frame if so those experiences
1: so I, that is a, a common uh, claim that is levelled um, at pretty much all of the people that, that forward these uh, arguments in public. I don't think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I personally don't think there is a single black or brown person that hasn't experienced some form of racism at some point in their life. I mean, the extent to which it is uh, argued happens or occurs, I think... Um, it is very much up for debate, but I'm sure you know it has occurred at some point uh, with most people. So that is for me undeniable. But um, I think to me that these are arguments, and that, and this is the important and frustrating thing about the way that the debate is framed. When it's always framed in terms of I as a this, because I think that actually what's universal is the fact that we all have the capacity to. Weigh up competing arguments and come to their own conclusions. And even if one hasn't experienced racism directly, I think we all, as human beings, again, can imagine what it might feel like to be discriminated against. So I'm very, I don't think that the, whether or not someone's experienced racism should necessarily be a decider of whether or not they have a, a fair or legitimate argument to, to put forward, even if it can be useful um, in, in understanding people's experiences and so on. So that that is an accusation that's levelled. I think the class point is, is uh, levelled quite a lot. And I always find it amusing. I mean, my mum worked three jobs uh, to send my sister and I to, to, to good schools um, because of those values I talked about in the beginning. And, you know, I'm very grateful to have been educated and that's an opportunity available for other people. So to me, there's it, it's just not true. Um, and I think it's, again, reveals to me the viewpoint that uh, for others who disagree with this perspective think about uh, a lot of black people that, um, if you are educated, if you're well spoken, if you present yourself a certain kind of way, then your authenticity as someone that can speak on issues of race and racism is is undermined or delegitimized to me. That reveals something to me about how how they perceive of black people. So I, I would definitely challenge that argument. And I think the the point about racism though is is an important one because, of course, racism exists, and I think as we all have to caveat that. But actually there are disagreements about what constitutes racism and there are disagreements about the extent of the problem. So I don't fully agree um, about many of the things that are claim to be racism within society. It would be that microaggressions or even the fact that in- impact is emphasised over intention. when I, th- I think intention does matter. And I think actually you know, a lot of the time people don't intend to be that way and I think you have to think about how you're perceiving it. But also I think more nebulous forms of racism... Or, or what is classed as racism, um, whether that's systemic, I think is, is often very difficult to pin down and to define. And so one of the things that uh, is, was discussed in the UK very significantly over the last few weeks is where are you from, where are you really from? These are, these are nuanced yeah, you debates. May, you may have
0: to explain to an American audience why that. I mean, we, we, mm. my audience will certainly be familiar with the idea that asking where are you from, no, where are you really from, mm. is a microaggression mm. But can you explain a little bit of the controversy, what happened here?
1: So there was a a member of the royal family, Lady Hussey, um, who asked a a British. Black woman who was dressed in uh, African-inspired attire, where repeatedly said, "Where are you really from?" Now, and there was a huge controversy in the UK, and it eventually led to the woman, Lady Hussey, the member of the royal family, stepping down. And, so, did
0: she permanently step down, or yeah, she permanently BBC stepped
1: up. down. Okay. And um, there was many black activists on the radio saying, "This is, you know, a disgrace," and uh, about the fact that she asked her this question, and that it reveals that. You know, the society is deeply racist and how dare she. It was a really quite vitriolic um, whole week um, in, the, in the public conversation. Now, I think it can be very, it was crass. I think it was also, um, I, I can understand why that would make someone feel uncomfortable. But I also think we have to take into account people's intention. So someone dressed for seemingly in a way to overemphasize their non britishness by they've changed their name to a african sounding name and also dressing in a way that is clearly inspired by traditional african whatever that means <laughs> traditional african garb um and I think she, lady Huss is of an older generation and may not be familiar with all of the uh, lingo that is now used you know what whether that's what what is your heritage or something like that um so I think that that's an example where uh we can't have a nuanced conversation. Um, something that is perceived of um, as racism is taken as racism, no questions asked. The other person's perspective is totally ignored and their intention. And then, and that label, which has often almost been used to describe the worst possible thing that could ever happen to somebody, um, is is now stuck to that person um, that, that is being accused. So I would say that I I don't think, I think I would have a, I'd use the term racism more, less frequently as it's used because I take it seriously.
0: Right. So I I even feel in describing a story, you're in a way giving too many concessions to the people that think this is racist, right? Mm -hmm. Mentioning her age Mm -hmm. or whatever, like let's assume she was, she said the same exact thing, but was younger. And let's even assume that I mean, I guess it is kind of relevant that this woman changed her name to an African-sounding name and was wearing African-looking garb, right? Mm-hmm. If I meet a person with an African-sounding name, an African garb, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in asking those first few icebreaker questions that help you start conversations with a stranger, and again, like, where are you from is top three mm-hmm. in that regard, in my experience. One of the best questions to ask because it often leads to, oh, I've been there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a friend there. And then you're into you know, the beginning of a friendship or acquaintanceship. And um, and so you ask, oh, well, where are you really from? You know, the reason for me that I don't even see how it could be, I don't see that it's racist necessarily is because if she had said, oh, I'm I'm really from Nigeria, mm-hmm. would the other lady have said, oh, yuck, Nigeria? Mm-hmm. Or would she have said, oh, Nigeria, that's amazing. I have mm-hmm. one of my good friends, right? So the, the mere curiosity or the assumption that you're, parents or grandparents were probably not born here based on how you look. Uh, that is not a judgment on the fact that you weren't born here. I'm not judging your parents for not being born here. I may just be genuinely curious because most people you know who look like you their grandparents were not born on this patch of land. And I'm curious what the story is, right?
1: I totally, I, and I'm personally very proud to be a British Nigerian. I'm quite happy to talk about it. If somebody asked me. And right. so, and I think it's often cherry picking uh, a lot of these people when they're going to be offended by it, because we know that what well, amongst uh, ethnic minority people oftentimes and I think this is a a huge shame when I speak to fellow British Nigerians and and Jamaicans and so on they'll say oh I'm Jamaican I'm not British I'm I'm Nigerian um, as a way of emphasizing their ethnic origin but then if a white person uh, might ask well you know where's your origin then you're saying oh are you saying that I'm not British so I think it's actually trying to have your cake and eat it particularly um, on that same point the fact that Identity is emphasised so much to such an extent where many of these uh, black activists suggest that their their ethnicity is who they really are. Uh, you know, it's not their interests, it's not their their tastes. It's actually their their racial identity, and so actually when a society then becomes created that um, sees that as actually a really important fact about a person, then all of a sudden that's a problem. But I agree with you, you know, if I'm in a taxi and I hear a foreign accent, you know, I, I ask, you know, where are you from? Ethnic minority people ask them that all the time. Even I ask that to white people. If someone's really, really blonde and really blue eyes, I often ask, are you from Scandinavia or something right. like that? And it's like, we know this. So this is what's so frustrating. It's like we're having we're being forced to um have a conversation, indulging in these things. And we all know that actually we all do this and the intention is much more uh, innocent uh, than, than what is framed. So on that earlier point you asked about whether or not I've experienced racism and how I frame that discussion, um, I think I'm very frank about the fact that I do disagree with some of the definitions that are, have been popularised around racism and how we understand racial disparities as being primarily a cause of discrimination. And, and that frustratingly means that people say, well, you must not believe racism exists. And I think that that is just an absurd claim and not helpful to actually understanding what's going on in a situation.
0: Yeah. So on that topic, um, under Boris Johnson, there was a now famous or infamous report commissioned mm-hmm. that was headed by, by Lord Tony Sewell. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that commission a little bit, what was the purpose of it and what did it find and what, what's your opinion of it?
1: Yeah, so the, as you uh, alluded to, so that when Black Lives Matter happened, there was a huge groundswell of uh, demand for something to be done um, about racism in society. And there's been many reports that have been done in the UK understanding various different aspects of um, racial disparities, whether that's in policing, Uh, or health, Uh, there was something called the Lama Review on uh, the criminal justice system, and one of the most famous ones was the McPherson Report that occurred. And the findings of many of these reports and things that were commissioned frequently concluded that a particular system, the criminal justice system, the police, um, were institutionally racist, uh, and that whatever disparity there was, um, in outcomes, socioeconomic outcomes was primarily or significantly driven by, by racism. And actually, for many campaigners and, and thinkers that are f- perhaps from a different persuasion, have expressed ro- worry over the last few decades that so much money has been invested into trying to combat institutional racism through anti-racism training or or various different race race conscious schemes. And that has not, necessarily changed the conclusions of the report or of the reports or actually led to um the kinds of outcomes that these race conscious policies uh, purport to result in and so that tony saw he founded uh, an organization called generating genius which uh effectively takes uh, disadvantaged young black children from a young age and mentors them to get into STEM subjects, science, technology, um, engineering and medicine. And it has been incredibly successful. And he is, through his own research um, and through his own work, has found you know, agency and empowerment and uh, models of success to be a very good way of inv- advancing the, the position of of a low socioeconomic people. And so the the report sought to look at many different uh, socioeconomic indicators um, and look at what other factors could be uh, involved in why there are certain disparities. And it it revealed that there were disparities, as bigger disparities within ethnic minority groups, as there were uh, between ethnic minorities and white people more broadly, that there are other factors that should be looked into, cultural factors such as family structure, individual behaviour, um, education, and also talks about replicating the models for success, um, not solely focusing on um, the, the trauma and, and kind of disadvantage and victimhood. And it didn't say that institutional racism didn't exist. It said that they... That could... is
0: how it was summarised in the press. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And this is...
0: This is you know, what's so, so you're saying there's no sentence in that report that says institutional racism doesn't exist or anything like that?
1: No, it did not say
0: institutional racism.
1: In fact, it, it specifically mentioned gives more powers to institutions in order to combat racism as and when uh, they found it. But because he challenged the prevailing narrative that you know, racial disparities don't necessarily equal discrimination, then he was uh, harangued in one of the most vicious examples I've, I've ever seen. Um, and although it, although the, the report was a report that was the, the commissioner's worth of minority people that had had decades worth of experience in social policy, health, education, policing and so on, uh, it was dismissed as a, a whitewash. And that's not the case. That's not true. But regardless of all of that, and I don't want it to be only negative, actually, it, it was still a landmark in showing that there is a different way of looking at this data and interpreting it. And there are ethnic minority people that very much endorse that way of thinking. Now, it's just the start. More research needs to be done to find out the reasons for disparities. But it just shows you the kinds of pressure people are under to come to one view. And actually you have to be almost a kind of courageous or brave person often just to say, actually, hold on, maybe racism isn't the only reason. That's not healthy if we want to genuinely deal with the issues that we claim to care about.
0: So I was reading one of your recent articles and you talked about the case of, uh, the tragic case of this young woman, Sasha Johnson. Mm. And it reminded me very much of an American case, but can you just describe what happened to Sasha Johnson briefly and what your take on it was. Mm.
1: So that Sasha Johnson, she was actually a, a black uh, activist, or she is a black activist, um, but she's in hospital now. And she wasn't the traditional Black Lives Matter activist. In, in many ways, she, she um, is a kind of old uh, black power type of activist. Um, I, I don't know the extent to which that that's still uh, dominant or, or prevalent. Um, but she was campaigning and, uh, and, and very well known in the press because she w- always used to dawn Black Panther-inspired in, in, clothing and, and ha- make loads of statements about black power and so on. And she was uh, shot uh, in the head very brutally. And um, when she was shot, uh, there was many suspicions that it was a white supremacist. Uh, we actually had um, a, a black Labour MP, Diane Abbott, uh, say that oh, no one should be sh- shot for or for fighting for racial justice, and the Black Lives Matter UK, you know, released a statement, um, basically insinuating that you know the support for her. But very soon after it transpired that she wasn't shot by uh, a white supremacist, but it looked like it was related to uh she she was a, it was a case of kind of mistaken identity in in a kind of turf war um uh most likely by black british uh, uh men and there was a complete silence nothing no no fundraising no campaigning uh no support for her in fact uh, a year later uh, her family, you know, released some photos and and uh, a GoFundMe, and it barely had any money on it. Um, and to me, it was a, I wrote about it because I thought it was so another just tragedy of how what we have is a situation where certain murders are politicized or certain crimes are politicized in order to push forward a particular narrative about the way society is, and actually, when the facts of the matter don 't conform to the narrative either there 's um, a deafening silence, or actually the the myth continues and you you mentioned the the myth of uh, in relation to uh, Michael Brown and, and the police yeah. and and to me, how can we say how is that okay as a society where we select we have selective outrage depending on the political motivations and I think um, that to me reveals something very uh, disingenuous and stark and, and and tragic and sad about the situation that we're in.
0: Yeah, so the, the case of Sasha Johnson bears an eerie similarity to, to a case that happened a few years ago in Houston, Texas. And the one that happened in, in America is even a more crystal clear thought experiment that crystallized the fact that we care sometimes and then we suddenly stop caring based on the skin color in in this case of the perpetrator so basically what happened is this little girl jasmine barnes who's about five years old five six or seven very young was uh sitting in a car and the car just got shot up Mm -hmm. and she died instantly and um a witness at the scene saw a white guy in a red truck like driving away from the scene so that was the initial police report they drew up a picture of him and you know within hours this was a national news story the new york times was covering it every single day right when the killer was still at large and presumed to be a white guy who um you know a bald white guy who had the kind of look of a white supremacist or a neo-nazi right there was no reason to suspect he was a neo-Nazi other than he had that stereotypical look and he was seen fleeing the scene. Um, cut to about a week into it, the Times has been covering it every day. You have politicians uh, you know, giving speeches in this little girl's name. Uh, it's, it's discovered that it was actually just another drive-by gang shooting and she was caught in the crossfire and the perpetrators were two black men in their 20s. Uh, this is the kind of thing that happens just all the time in in America, and all of a sudden everything just shuts down. You don't hear about the story ever again. The um, you know Sean King, the the uh, you know fraudulent activist who had raised a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars in her name, um, suddenly the the money just stopped coming. Nobody cared. Um, And it turns out that white guy in the, in the truck was just a random guy at the scene fleeing the sound of, of gunfire. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And this was just such a crystal clear case because even in the Sasha Johnson case, you could make some argument however clever about how maybe it was that they thought it was politically motivated and that's why people cared. And then it turned out to not be politically motivated. Right. But like, in this case, race is the only variable, right? There was no reason to believe this guy was a neo-Nazi. He was just white. All it was is a white guy was seen, and they thought he shot a little black girl, and the whole country grinded to a halt. Then it turns out it was just a black guy who killed that black girl, and you, you never hear about the story again.
1: No, I, I mean, it's, it's just, it's scary. And I think actually, to me, there's something even more horrifying about it, not just the fact that people only care about the race, is that, well, actually, are we saying that it doesn't matter then if, if it's a, a black person that perpetrated the crime? Right. And to me, that's a kind of uh, a, a completely, ab- a huge abdication of responsibility um, for actually dealing with the fact that um, in some communities in America and also in the UK, there's such a gr- and nihilistic attitude towards life um, where these kinds of things can occur, so to me it's still a political issue yeah you know, so even if people can make the argument that you you suggested about, oh well, well, I thought it was politically motivated, maybe it's not well, actually in a way, it still is that that actually there is a disproportionate amount of crime amongst some communities which me- that we just ignore or that we apologize for. Um, and again, part of this narrative that is disempowering and, and completely ignores people's agency is also it's the way in which it creates excuses for, I won't say justifications for, but very much excuses for kinds of behaviours that are, are frankly immoral um, and that, that should not be tolerated. And so to me, um, I think it's just as much of a political issue and question As to how we have become, uh, we've almost resigned to the fact that certain uh, groups of people, certain communities, are are where crime can just proliferate to such a point where uh, young girls and, and people in general can can lose their life. And so, to me, that 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 is one of the most scary elements, but as you also mentioned now, no, and one of the things I'm actually worried about, and I, I don't think it will be too bad, I don't know in America, but also this rising white identity politics. Um, of course, we have the historical white identity politics, i.e. racism, but there's a kind of new form that is emerging, which is almost a kind of white victimhood politics in, in this discussion about anti-white racism, because people rightfully and understandably feel slightly resentful of the fact that not only is there a new racial thinking where you can kind of make huge moral judgments about people based off of what they look like, but also the the way in which certain crimes or behaviors are being viewed fundamentally differently, depending on your race. Now, to me, we're only human. And that's what's strange about this, the new anti-racist politics. It almost asks white people to be more than human, by not getting annoyed about the things that would probably annoy the rest of us. Um, And so in regards to this issue, when we don't treat crimes different, um, when we don't treat crimes the same, when we don't treat free speech issues uh, the same, regardless of race, then I think that you're brewing a a kind of racial victimhood in white people, which actually can be exploited and, and have a backlash. And so to me, that is another thing that, I, why I deeply oppose what's going on? Because then you you can create new resentments
0: that totally, are not helpful yeah. at all. No, you make a great point. I mean, the this is the Robin d'angeloification of the conversation about race, which is you know her whole worldview. Probably my central problem with it is that she treats black people like children, that and like, like spoiled children essentially that just need to be coddled and. Anything that upsets you, it's you know, it's mommy and daddy's fault. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, I touched my mic there. Like anything that upsets you is mommy and daddy's fault, and we're the mature ones. We'll fix it, right? And she treats white people as the adults in the the adults in the room that have to, um, you know, hide their emotions so so the kid doesn't cry. And like it's really she the picture she paints is similar to the relationship between a, a, an exasperated parent and a petulant child. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so she has a. You know, a scene in her book where she says, you know, you are not supposed to, as a white person, cry in front of a black person because black people are, if you're a white woman at least, were triggered supposedly by our historical memory of white women crying in fake accusations of rape against black men that would then get black men lynched. And this is obviously an absurd—though that historically did happen— uh, it's absurd to think that black people think of that if they see a white woman crying today. No black person in the history has ever thought of that when mm-hmm. they saw like a white woman crying for whatever reason because she just got broken up with or something. Mm-hmm. It's like that thought has never happened. But in in D'Angelo's mind, it's up to white people to exercise self control so as to spare the emotions of black people. And black people, we're just any emotion we have is valid, right? We're allowed to just like so. This is. Um, a double standard. And it's one that many white elites may kind of be comfortable with because, you know, if you're doing well and you are a high status person in society, you don't have to worry about money. And even more important, you are validated. You, you have a position of real, really like feeling like you matter in society and you're seen. Maybe this kind of thing doesn't bother you so much. If you're a working class person and you don't have very much money and all you have is your dignity and the ability to feel that, you know, your country respects your identity and you're now you're being asked to basically observe this double standard where, you know, you have to be superhuman. But, uh, you know, people of color are supposed to be able to do whatever they want. Um, that's the kind of thing that would really stick in your craw. And uh, savvy politicians are going to come around and whip up and encourage that resentment in very ugly ways.
1: And I, I don't see under those circumstances how you can really expect um, people to really improve themselves. I mean, we, we see it in education, this whole idea that uh, punctuality uh, um, you know, so good grammar and things like that are supposedly uh, white Western constructs. And so what incentive is there to uh, improve yourself? And no one's ever going to tell you that you're wrong. No one's ever going to tell you that you're talking nonsense, that you need to work harder, that you need to um, you need to improve yourself and that you're the only person responsible for your life is is, is you. Um, if you're never going to be told that or, or, and wouldn't even expect that, then you are you will be in a position of 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 paralysis of of infantilization and that, that that again is a very uh that's an awful dynamic particularly a racialized dynamic and and you know i had i went to an event i was speaking at an event and one of the people that was speaking with me a white woman she asked me what um what i was saying before because she can't be seen to be disagreeing with a black woman i could not believe that And to me, how even though I know that her intentions um, were actually, in a way, self-preservation, because her peer group um, would look at her poorly, how can I then, how can I believe that you respect me or or see me as your equal or as an adult that I'm not capable of engaging in uh, disagreement or or discourse? And so that keeps... um, Black people and ethnic minority people, more generally, in this position of 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 uh, infantilization, never really able to fully take advantage of opportunities because uh, society kind of expects them uh, to behave in 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 certain ways and uh, are not really encouraging them to take the tools that will enable them to rise above their situation. And you know that that to me that that is unsustainable. Um, because for the reasons I outlined in terms of the kinds of resentments that that it creates um, but also because it, it's it's not true it's not an accurate reflection about how human beings behave and so we have to really confront that
0: mm. all right so before I let you go I, I want to I guess just ask what what are your near and medium-term ambitions as a person because you know you've proven Already, that you have a a talent for institution building, right, with the Equiano project, and forgive me for forgetting the name of the free speech organization you founded.
1: Free Speech Champions. Free Speech Champions.
0: <laughs> that's right. So you've shown yourself to be a great institution builder at an abnormally young age to be institution building, and and you've also, you know, you you've ran for office. So, I mean, it can be awkward discu- discussing future plans that may or may not actually pan out. But do you do you have a vision for what you want to do next? Whether that's with the institutions you've already created, or whether that's branching out into other areas? Mm.
1: Well, I, I mean, the Aquanet project, you know, is definitely something that. after the conference, which I thought was a huge success, I I do think continuing to build those uh, networks and connections uh, across the Atlantic, um, but also along from the left and the right, because I think that that's one of the uh, things about the problem of our society today, about this kind of guilt by association, that we have to be hyper-conscious about who we're sharing a platform with and things like that, actually, in a democracy, Um, we should be uh, uh, being able to have discussions um, across different divides. And in some ways, then can we come to some kind of consensus about solutions? So I think the Equiano project is going to continue to hopefully host and platform these important discussions for liberal democracy and uh, to be doing that both in the UK um, and the, and the US. But i mean by by trade so to speak i'm I'm a broadcaster, so um I have worked for for newspapers um and uh different media companies and I hope that these kinds of discussions don't whilst it's amazing that we have them um in the digital domain and and um online I don't want our arguments to be the alternative. I think that they should be the mainstream arguments to me color blindness and and the and the kind of tolerance and free speech politics um that is argued for, um, should not be something that is uh, considered just an alternative perspective. Um, I think that these are the foundations for democracy, and and I do think our democracy depends on their advancement. And so it's taking these discussions more and more, which I know that you're doing as well, um, to to the uh, institutions that are already established um, and convincing them um through argument, through through persuasion and discussion that these are values worth defending, these are values worth fighting for and uh, institutionalizing, and that the current approach that we've been taking is doing more harm than good and is cre- creating unnecessary division in a society at a time where we have big challenges, whether that's you know AI, economic stagnation, technological development, we're at a point in a liberal democracy where these questions are really urgent. And I'd rather us be engaging with those big questions rather than you know, whether or not someone does or does not feel offended by you know, a tweet or, or being asked where, where they're really from.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I totally support you in that goal and I'm, I'm honoured to be a part of this Equiano Project conference mm-hmm. and I hope all of my followers now follow you um, and how can they do that? Where should they do that? What's your Twitter handle and all uh, At
1: Anaya Flaren and the Project.com. And I'm so grateful uh, for you also, Coleman, for coming over. Your, I'm a big admirer of yours and you. you have a big following in the UK. And long may it continue and grow.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Anaya.
1: Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.